coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. When I started training more for performance, um, you know, what I found was that not only did my performance get better with a wider array of, of, of foods, in, especially including a lot more fruits and vegetables into the diet, but my body composition was better too. Um, and that made the diet a lot more enjoyable. And so my, um, my stick to itness or my, the sustainability of the diet was much better um, because I had a, 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 you know, one of the things that happens particularly with fruit is, is, is if you're, if you're eating poorly, uh, routinely, you know, and you're routinely indulging in cookies and cakes and sweets and, you know, sodas and all that kind of stuff. Um, an orange doesn't really taste like a treat, mm-hmm. you know, but when you get off of that stuff for a while and you're, you know, you're dialing back on all the, the kind of the, the junk food in terms of the cookies and snack cakes or whatever, ice cream or whatever it is, that's your, that's your vice. All of a sudden an orange and an apple or a bowl full of grapes, those sorts of things, they start to taste a lot more satisfying. Um, you know, and they, they become almost like a treat, um, you know, and so that was, that was one of the things for me was just in, include a lot more fruits and vegetables, didn't have any negative impact on, you know, body fat. In fact, it, I think it helped. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was five, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interview gym owner, strength and conditioning coach, and former professional powerlifter, Andy Baker. He also co-authored two books, Strength Training for Life After 40 and Practical Programming for Strength Training. We discussed what Andy learned from powerlifting and dieting, along with the magic of setting a timeline for reaching your goals foods to help performance in the gym, proper programming to build muscle, the importance of consistent rest between sets, and his one tip to get your body back to what it once was. Really enjoyed my interview with Andy. I know you will too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin and I have Andy Baker on. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Where are you coming from? I forgot to ask. Um, I am um, in Kingwood, Texas, which is about 30 miles north of uh, Houston. So okay. out of Texas. Yeah. And how long you've been there for? Um, I more or less lived here my whole life. Uh, brief stint um, out in California when I was in the Marine Corps, um, but more or less lived uh, in Houston my whole life and, um, you know, had my had my gym here since uh, 2007. Um, you know, so I've had that going for, That's what is great. That about? Wow. you know, what is that 14 years, 15 years, something like that. More, no, than, more that. than that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 17, coming up, yeah. Seven. Coming up on 17 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that keeps me busy. You know, that's, um, it's good, good place to live other than the summertime when it's, you know, three months straight of 105 and 90% humidity. But other than that, great city. Right. Right. That, well, that's like us, you know, in Chicago, you get the three months of, you know, negative, you know, and snow and <laughs> wind and yeah, wind. Yeah, exactly. Although it's been very mild. So I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, maybe explain to the audience a little bit about your background. I know you've been in strength and conditioning industry since like 2001. And, and so what sort of led you down that path into opening a gym and everything? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I got, I got hooked on lifting at an early age. Um, you know, like most, most kids, like, you know, kind of, um, dovetailed with like playing sports and that sort of thing. But, you know, the first time I touched a barbell, I think I was 12 or 13 years old. 
um, you know, and I was hooked, you know, from, from, from the first time I laid hands on one. So, you know, that it started, the journey started for me, you know, very early. Um, and, you know, once I, once I got involved with it, I was, you know, pretty, pretty well obsessed with it and, uh, you know, lifted all through high school and, um, you know, got really heavily into the bodybuilding side of things, um, you know, during, uh, my college years. Um, and then, um, you know, kind of always knew that I, I studied exercise science at, uh, Texas A&M and, pretty much always knew I wanted to go this route, but wasn't, wasn't exactly sure, um, what Avenue I wanted to go down originally when I started my studies, you know, academically, I wanted to work as a strength and conditioning coach, like at the, like at the university level, working with athletes and that sort of thing. But, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, you kind of get into that world a little bit and it's not, it's, it, you know, it's not as awesome as you think it is from the outside, you know, certain realities, just like a lot of things, you know, certain realities of the dream job, um, right. you know, make it not, not the dream job. And so, um, you know, started having my eye on, you know, doing my own thing, having my own facility. Um, so that, that kind of came into fruition. It's a long story, but kind of came into fruition in late 2007, um, and, uh, opened the gym and primarily started, um, primarily started working with, with athletes again, that's who I wanted. That's, that was my, my interest at the time, you know, as a young trainer and young coach was working with high school and college athletes. So first several years that I was in operation, that was mainly who I was working with, but over time, it just kind of snowballed into, you know, working with, um, you know, a lot of it started with just working with these kids, parents, you know, that started coming in. So you got these high school college age kids and stuff and, you know, they're seasonal. So you're working with them for the summertime and maybe a few weeks over Christmas, maybe a little bit at spring break. Um, you know, especially if they're not, if they're going to school somewhere, not, you know, not, um, not within driving distance or whatever. So, um, you know, you, you wind up just with the adults in the area and the kids, parents and all that stuff coming into the gym. And so I found myself in a place where I had about 50% athletes that I was working with and 50%, just, you know, kind of regular people, um, in the gym, moms and dads and grandparents, you know, people in their forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, I've had clients all the way up into their eighties still do. Um, you know, so kind of working, you know, working on both sides of that, that spectrum. So, um, and I've, you know, more or less just maintained that again for like the last 17 years, you know, of, uh, of just bringing strength and conditioning to a pretty, pretty wide, um, diversity, uh, diverse group of people. So, um, keeps it, keeps it interesting, keeps it fun and, and sharpens your skill set for sure. Yeah. And I noticed from your, um, website in 2010, you, you competed in nationals, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, I was never super passionate about powerlifting, but it was something that I kind of early in my career, it was something I was, um, I was definitely into, um, in the competitive side of powerlifting. I was working with powerlifters, um, you know, some, um, I had, that was kind of part of, um, part of the business side that I was working with. I was working with powerlifters. And so I felt like to a degree I needed to be competing as well. If I was going to go down that route, um, you know, I had some ability, I wasn't, um, um, you know, I wasn't elite level, but I was, I was good. You know, I was, I was okay. Um, and I, I enjoyed it for a while, but like, you know, like a lot of those types of competitive sports, as you get into your late twenties and early thirties and, you know, the demands of business and you start, start cranking out kids and that sort of thing. It just becomes where you kind of have to make a decision of how much, how much time and effort and money can I, can I invest into this? What is essentially a hobby, um, you know, um, to do, you know, with, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to go on to win, uh, you know, the world championships, it's a different thing, but yeah, Yeah. I had some, I had some, I had some limited success with powerlifting and I, you know, I learned a lot through, 
competing um, as much about the training of, of, you know, uh, the, the, the building of the strength, you know, for the, for the competitions and that sort of thing for myself, but also, you know, powerlifting is a weight class sport. And so there, the diet is very important in that, in that you have to show up on game day, weighing a certain amount. And you obviously want to show up, you know, if you're going to compete, like I did in the 198 pound weight class, you know, that means you, you, you can't go over 198. So that you would like to, if possible, weigh 197, 198 and have as much of that, you know, much of that be muscle mass and the least amount of it be body fat. I mean, that's generally the guy that wins the meat is the guy that carries the most amount of muscle and the least amount of body fat in that weight class. Um, so the diet and everything is very important. A lot of people don't realize that because they yeah. look at some of the super heavyweight power lifters, and then it's a little less important because you've got guys weighing, you know, 300, you know, 308 plus or whatever. Um, but, and then, you know, then it's not as important um, to really, you know, watch how, you know, your, your body fat level and that sort of thing. Um, but that's, even that's changing a little bit in modern day powerlifting. You're starting to see guys um, that are starting to understand it's not necessarily the heaviest guy that wins. It's the guy with the most amount of muscle mass that wins. So, um, and generally heavier guys do carry more muscle, but it's, it's not necessarily the same thing. So the diet portion um, has entered into the powerlifting world in a big way over the last decade or so in a way that when I was coming up, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was more kind of powerlifting was, you know, body bodybuilding. That was where dieting took place. Powerlifting was more of the seafood diet. You just ate everything right. in sight and hope to get stronger, you know, which it does work, but it doesn't always lead to the most favorable um, body composition. So um, yeah, that was a big, um, the, the competition powerlifting that I did um, in the early 2000s was very helpful uh, for me if for nothing else just for my my own education in terms of the training but especially the diet part of it yeah and what you learned from that how did you translate that over to just like general population individuals who are looking to just get stronger well um you know it's what what would work you know what works for a competitive athlete is going to work for the general population as well it's it's really not nothing's really different it's just a matter of degree um you know how how strict do you have to be um you know when you have to weigh a certain amount on a certain date then you got to be pretty strict there's not a whole lot of room for cheat meals and going off schedule and that sort of thing um and you don't have a lot of if you mess it up for a couple of weeks you don't have a lot of time um to to dial back the clock and kind of undo it. The hard, I think the harder part actually, and this, this, this applies to training as well as diet. I think the harder part about um, working with a general population is that there, there isn't always necessarily a timeline. You know, they don't, they don't, you may arbitrarily set one, but there's something that there's a magic that happens with competition in that you have a set date. Mm -hmm. Like I have to be ready to go on this date and that will get you in shape. You know, whether you're, whether you're doing for a triathlon or powerlifting meet or bodybuilding competition, having that date on the calendar where you risk, you know, either not performing well or, you know, embarrassment by showing up out of shape and not ready to go, um, you know, or disappointment with yourself. It's a, it's very much a form of accountability to have that date on the calendar to, to hold, to make you stick to your diet. It's very, very easy when working with the general population to kind of, when things kind of unravel a little bit on them, it's like, well, what's, I mean, what's the hurry? What's the rush? They don't have it. There's no date on the calendar to hold them accountable. And that, um, that makes it a little bit harder, even, and even if you do set a date, 
we kind of, as the coach and as the athlete, they kind of both know it's arbitrary, right? Like there's no, you don't actually got to show up in front of a bunch of people and have to lift in a singlet or whatever. Right. So, or, or, or pose on stage. So I think, I do think that goal setting with the general population is important and goal setting. I think as we both know it, that includes a timeline. It's not just, I want to lose 20 pounds or whatever, but I want to lose 20 pounds by when. Um, and again, even if it, it needs to be realistic, obviously, but I think having, um, you know, having these, um, even if they're arbitrary goals on calendar help to keep people accountable that way, when somebody has a bad weekend, you know, oh man, I really messed up Friday through Sunday. My diet was totally off track or whatever. Um, we don't let that bad weekend turn into a week and then turn into a month. Right. Because we kind of agreed on this day. Like we really, you can, you can get away with, you know, oh man, I really messed up today. Or even I really messed up this whole weekend. But when you start having the, the, the weekends turn into weeks, turn into months of, you know, being off track on your, your eating and your discipline, um, then that's where things really unravel. And you have the clients that keep having to go back to square one to start back over again and again. So I think, you know, that, that would be number one is, is trying to get people to um, apply some, put some pressure on themselves uh, to an extent with having some hard dates of when to accomplish these goals. Um, and those can be adjusted. Those can be, I mean, like you say, it's not set in stone, but it, 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 it is helpful uh, to make sure that the, that things are accomplished in a, in a reasonable timeline and this process isn't dragged out um, forever. Um, in terms of the nuts and bolts of, of dieting, um, you know, one of the things that coming from a bodybuilding background at the time, you know, a lot of the stuff that I was familiar with, a lot of the coaches and the sources um, that I was um, familiar with on, on the diet side of things were not um, everything. Everything was like basically at, at that level. It was it was uh, uh, chicken and rice. I was just going to say that it's it's just chicken and rice, you know, and, and which is, you know, it's it, rice is a great source of carbs. You know, it digests easily for most people. You know, right. it doesn't have a lot of accompanying fat. Chickens cost it for the same reason. It's a high quality source of protein, easy to digest, doesn't have a lot of fat with it. So, you know, chicken and rice, obviously there's a reason why bodybuilders do that. It's not just legend. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's an effective way to train, but it's not, I think long-term, um, it's not really sustainable for most people to, to be that restrictive. And so one of the things that opened up, you know, when the way, when I was dieting was that I included a lot more fruits and vegetables, um, and my, and there was kind of this weird thing with vet, with fruit in, in the bodybuilding world for years that you couldn't eat, you couldn't eat fruit. Fructose was, right. you know, banned and, and, you know, it would, that it was a different type of sugar that would convert more easily to body fat. And, you know, so I just, you know, I didn't have any formal training or education on this. I went along with what everybody else did and, and vegetables were kind of seen as like this thing that was like, well, yeah, they're probably good for you, but you don't really need them. So they're kind of optional. And when you're mm -hmm. having, when, like with bodybuilding, when you're having to eat five, six, seven times a day, you actually get tired of eating. So like, mm -hmm. you don't necessarily want to include vegetables if they're if they're seen as um optional or whatever but when i started training more for performance um you know what i found was that not only did my performance get better with a wider array of of uh, foods in, especially including a lot more fruits and vegetables into the diet but my body composition was better too um and that made the diet a lot more enjoyable and so my um my stick to itness or my the sustainability of the diet was much better um because i had a a why you know one of the things that happens particularly with fruit if if is if you're if you're eating poorly uh routinely you know and you're routinely indulging in cookies and cakes and sweets and you know sodas and all that kind of stuff um an orange doesn't really taste like a treat 
mm-hmm. you know, but when you get off of that stuff for a while and you're, you know, you're dialing back on all the, the kind of the, the junk food in terms of the cookies and snack cakes or whatever, ice cream or whatever it is, that's your, that's your vice. All of a sudden an orange and an apple or a bowl full of grapes, those sorts of things, they start to taste a lot more satisfying, um, you know, and they, they become almost like a treat, um, you know? And so that was, that was one of the things for me was just in, include a lot more fruits and vegetables, didn't have any negative impact on, you know, body fat. In fact, I think it helped. Um, I think it helps with digestion to have a better, certainly the fiber, but also just a more, um, a more varied, you know, source of foods so that you're, you've got a, a, a better kind of biome in the gut in terms of digestive enzymes and that sort of thing of not just eating the same stuff over and over and over again. So, um, you know, and also varying up protein sources too, more fish and lean beef and stuff like that. And not just, um, you know, not just chicken and rice all the time. So I try to build that in for my clients as well as giving them, you know, when I help people with nutrition, um, to go along with their training plan is, you know, making sure that we're, um, you know, that we're allotting room in there for enough fruits and vegetables for, um, you know, for, for all, for all of the reasons, you know, they're a great carb source, all the micronutrients and fiber and that sort of stuff, but also to, to help people stick to the diet a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot there. I think that that's a good point regarding diet is like how, how sustainable can it be for the long term? And I mean, you're seeing this a lot and I'm sure you probably run into like, obviously like carnivores or people that are sort of extreme one way or the other, you know, and it, I feel like it can be good maybe perhaps in the short term, especially if you're yeah. getting off sort of like the standard American diet. Yeah. I agree. I agree. It does work. I mean, it's, I mean, but lots of stuff like when you cut out entire food groups or entire macro, uh, you know, entire macros, you know, you'll completely cut out fat, completely cut out carbs. I mean, you're in a way you're, um, you're reducing calories, you know, just simply by cutting out, even if you're not counting calories, you, you are in effect reducing them by just by cutting out, you know, tons of food groups. Um, you know, the carnivore thing, it is harder to overeat on meat versus, you know, uh, highly processed carbohydrates. So you're, you're, you know, if you're just telling somebody, the only thing you can have is meat, well, you're going to limit the amount of calories they eat. You're cutting out, you're, you're cutting out carbohydrates completely, but you're also eating a highly, satiating type of food that is, you know, you're not going to sit there and people don't just sit there and eat, you know, one chicken breast after another while they're watching TV, you know, that's just not, so they fill up faster. So, but like you said, is it sustainable and is it healthy? You know, I can't really be, I've, I've dieted down to pretty low body fats and I can't be convinced that eating just meat at the exclusion of say green vegetables is better. I mean, I've gotten down to extremely low body fats, basically eating proteins and green vegetables, you know, broccoli, green beans. I mean, I, I don't, I don't see a compelling reason to exclude things like that from the diet, um, unless it's just strictly a form of psychological, um, you know, for the adherence of, look, you can have this one food group and that's it. Like you said, it's kind of an extreme measure to kind of recalibrate people that are really, really unhealthy um, and are really off the, you know, really maybe struggling with even, you know, mild food addictions or whatever to really kind of go the other way. I'm not, I'm not, like you said, I'm not necessarily opposed to that if that's what it takes to get somebody really out of that um, that bad space physically, mentally, and emotionally, it may take, you know, there to a degree, you know, in a lot of things, moderation doesn't, you, you say everything in moderation, that's not necessarily true. I mean, that doesn't work for an alcoholic. 
Um, you know, as, as somebody that's really, really, really struggled with alcohol addiction their whole lives, they, they can't just 99% of them are never going to be able to handle alcohol in moderation, you know, for whatever reason, it just doesn't work. So cer certain people with, I think with, um, you know, what we would call food addictions and things like that, uh, there are, there are, there is a case to be made from abstinence from certain food groups, um, you know, that people, if it routinely leads you down the wrong path, you know, um, you know, it doesn't work with nicotine. You know, I've had my own struggles with nicotine on and off for 20 something years. And I can tell you, I mean, it's one, you know, one chew or one cigarette, that's it. You know, you go, you go right back to it. It doesn't, everything in moderation does not work for addiction. And so if people are, are that far down that route, then it, it may help to, to follow uh, something of abstinence. But I think the thing with food, the thing with the, the difference is with alcohol, with nicotine, with drugs, you don't have to have those things. You don't have to drink. You don't have to dip or smoke. You don't have to do drugs. You have to eat. And so you have to figure out where, how can we get this person back. Maybe short term, we're doing something to try to get 25 pounds off this guy to fix his insulin sensitivity to maybe give him some positive momentum. You know, wow. Okay. Cause if you do something extreme and you can get 25, 30 pounds off of somebody really fast, that's going to give them some positive psychological momentum um, that can maybe that can carry them for forward. And then, then you have that conversation later on of, okay, look, we've been doing this thing for a while. Like we got to start kind of maybe thinking about getting you back to a more quote normal diet so that you can function better um, in society. Typically, if you also, if you have a family and stuff like that too, it's really hard to do those types of extreme diets and still um, kind of participate in what's, you know, quote, normal family life. You know, um, I mean, are you going to subject your kids and your wife and everybody to strictly eating meat just because that's your choice? You know, right. it's like, you know, um, so you know, getting people back into introducing some of those foods of it's starting with, I would say, you know, vegetables and fruit as number one, um, you know, and kind of going down that route. So, um, have yeah. You, have you found like the way you've eaten? I mean, has that, how's that affected how you've performed in the weight room and like when you've excluded certain things or included certain things, how, how do you how, dial that in? Yeah. So I think when you're, Part of it is this is one of the things when I was powerlifting of, of including a lot more fruits and vegetables and things like that. I think, I think when you're healthy, it helps. It helps to improve your. Obviously, being fit improves your health, but I also think being healthy kind of improves your fitness. I think everything in your body operates better um, when you're giving your body everything that it needs to perform all of its functions, whether it's digestion or uh, you know uh, regulating body fat or uh, building muscle mass and all that, all that kind of stuff is, yes, it's the, it's the, what we think of kind of pr the protein and the carbs, but I think just everything operating as it should be by providing your body with the right amount of micronutrients and fibers and all that kind of stuff is going to make you perform better. I certainly had much better energy, um, you know, not just strength, but energy to train when, when I'm sticking to the diet, my sleep is better. Um, you know, and so I've, that, that has a huge impact on performance in the gym or any other sport is, is sleep. So when your sleep is regulated, when you're waking up with more energy, you're not waking up, you know, dog ass tired because you ate a bunch of carbs, you know, a bunch of cookies and stuff right before you went to bed. You know, I always, when I eat like that, I always wake up, you know, feeling sluggish and, you know, not, not so great, but when you wake up feeling refreshed because you had a good night's sleep, um, you know, and, and so that has a huge impact. And I think you're, you're just, your recovery is better. Um, you know, so uh, you're hitting those weights hard and heavy. You're breaking down a lot of muscle. You're creating a lot of muscle damage. Um, you know, you need the digestion to be well, because the thing is, it's not, 
especially like when you're eating a seafood diet uh, where you're just eating everything in sight, what I, what I kind of liken it to, and I have a friend in the business, Nathan Payton, that, that, you know, kind of led me onto this analogy. It's like trying to fill up a drinking glass with a garden hose, you know, and it's, or, or with a fire hose, you know, it's like, it's overkill when you're just trying to, you're just trying to cram all that food in there. So you're, di- you're eating a lot of food, but like what I would say, it's, it's not necessarily how much you eat. It's how much you utilize, you know, or it's how much you use. So just cramming in cal, you know, calorie after calorie after calorie, your body can only use so much of that for recovery. Um, it can only do- digest so much of that efficiently. So learning how to eat cleaner, learning how to eat, you know, smaller meals broken up more rather than just, you know, sitting down at the, at the buffet and, and, and feeding yourself till you can hardly walk, you know, which is how a lot of powerlifting diets were, <laughs> you know, back in the eighties and nineties and early two thousands, but we've kind of borrowed from the bodybuilding world to, to lead, to realize that there's actually a better way to eat and your, your recovery is going to be better. That, that same, you know, 200 grams of protein per day broken up into smaller portions is going to be better than sitting there and trying to do two different hundred gram feedings. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, how, how do we, do we know how much exactly, you know, that's always a debate, how much protein can be utilized in a single sitting. And it probably varies by the person. I think probably big guys with tons of muscle can probably use a little bit more, but we don't really, but we do know that at some level, it's going to be better utilized, broken down into smaller feedings versus kind of those big giant force feedings. So, um, you know, yeah, I mean, long story short, eating healthier, eating cleaner, um, really paying attention to both your macro and micronutrient profiles is going to lead to better workouts and better recovery, better sleep. So yeah, it's a, it's a win all the way around. And I've noticed you on your podcast, which is, was it the Baker Barbell podcast? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes, sir. Uh, you talked about like picking the right programming for you. And, you know, yeah. we talked a little bit about diet. What about, uh, how do you go about, you know, picking the right program for individuals based on, you know, their goals and, and maybe, maybe their level of fitness as well. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you, the first thing right there is goals. You know, what are your goals? Are you trying to, you know, whether it's, so I kind of had my lifters categorized into different, uh, well, different categories. So, you know, starting with, um, you know, let's say, you know, strength athletes, and that could, I would, I would categorize them into competitive or non-competitive. So some guys want to go down the route of competing and powerlifting. Some guys just want to get stronger on the squat bench and deadlift, you know, or whatever lifts that they choose to focus on. You know, a lot of people just do that because that's, that's kind of what the internet or social media, whatever, focus on how much you bench, how much you deadlift, how much you squat, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so and those are as good a proxies as any for just overall general strength. But so are you, is that your focus? Are you trying to lift bigger, bigger numbers? You know, so that's one subcategory of, of clientele, um, strength focused. And then there's more of the muscle mass and physique type. You know, I don't necessarily want to compete in bodybuilding, but I just, I want to get as big and muscular and aesthetic as possible, including having, you know, a lower body fat so that, you know, I look great at the beach or the pool or whatever. So that's kind of a bodybuilding with a lower B um, crowd. And then I have my sport athletes. So the people that are, that are using the, you know, they're, they're training the, they're trying to build the strength in the muscle mass, but in order to apply it to something like a sport, um, you know, with your high school and college athletes, that's, it's obvious with, but I get adult, you know, adult clients that compete in, you know, triathlons, various things or whatever, or even just recreational activities, like, you know, biking, hiking, camping, you know, hunting and stuff like that, where you have to be in good physical shape. And then I've got my, um, you know, my clients where we would just say, 
you know, it's more about just broad based general health and fitness, which obviously strength and building strength and building muscle is a large part of that. And usually that's the foundation for most people who are new to this. So to kind of at the beginning to deciding what category each of these, this potential client, this hypothetical client would fall into, and then designing programming for that person, somebody who's just interested in general health and fitness, which is probably the bulk of my clients and probably the bulk, it's the bulk of most people's clients that are in this business is that even if, even if their goal is not necessarily to squat 500 pounds or bench 400 pounds or whatever for the new person, for the novice, that's new, that's new to this fit and this whole fitness thing, starting with a foundation of strength and muscle mass is usually the key. You know, that's, that's where I want to start them. Um, if you're, if you're weak, if you're, if you're under muscled, everything else that you try to participate in, it's going to suffer. You're, if you want to, you know, and it doesn't mean we don't focus on trying to get their body fat down or whatever, if they're, you know, overweight or whatever, but people need to start by trying to improve the amount of muscle mass that they have and the amount of just general baseline strength, um, that they have. And that's true. If you're an athlete, you know, and you're, you're, you're the, the goal is to get faster on the track or the football field or, and prevent knee injuries or whatever, the foundation is still strength and muscle. You know, if for somebody who's trying to, you know, look awesome at that. They want to look like a bodybuilder, lowercase B at the beach or the pool or whatever for the summer season, the foundation is, is strength and muscle, right? It's like, you can't, you can't tone and define muscle that you don't have. Right. And so it's, and then obviously for the strength side of it, it's the same thing. So I might, for new people, they're often, their program is not going to look very different regardless of their goal, because it's just going to be a, a foundational basic strength and muscle building program. You know, I'm fond of barbells, you know, that's kind of my, my thing is that's what I coach. I coach people in the, in the basic barbell lifts, the squat, the bench press, the deadlift, the overhead press, chin-ups and pull-ups, things like that. If they, if they can do them, if not, then I'll use a limited amount of like machine-based training and stuff like that. And then once we get them to a, to a point kind of which we kind of increase that baseline of just general strength, then we start to specialize a little bit more in whatever unique um, category they fit into, you know, so as, as more of an intermediate trainee, that's where goal setting becomes really, really important. I kind of like right. it to, I, I liken it to, to education. I mean, when we start, you know, we take this hypothetical person, we say, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we, education is broad and basic at the beginning right? You just, you need to, and, and you need to learn the foundations. You need to learn how to read. You need to learn how to write. You need to learn how to do basic math. Like if you can't do those things, you're not going to be able to do anything more advanced, mm-hmm. but then once, you know, and then you, you know, so you finish your secondary school, you get into college. It's still, it's even a little bit more of the basics, you know, a little faster pace, a little bit more, but it's still, you know, improving the reading, writing and math. And then as you get further along, now you have to declare a major, Right. And then you have to start to specialize in that thing a little bit more. And you're using all of those skills that you built up there. You know, you're not going to be good at science or history or whatever it is that you specialize in. If you don't have good reading skills and good writing skills, like you have to be able to do all those things. So it's, it's declare. And then, you know, the further up the chain you go, you go into the master's program, you go into your PhD, it gets even more and even more specialized. Um, And so that's the way that I think it is with fitness as well, is that, it's, it's the same thing. It's at the beginning with most clients, Hey, we got to teach these people to read, write, and do basic math, you know, regardless of what their goal is. They may want to be, you may have one kid that wants to be a PhD chemist and another one that wants to be a PhD in philosophy. They're all going to start at the same place, right? None of those people are going to get it if they can't read, write, and do basic math. And then as they get closer and closer, then we start to specialize even more in that, um, 
you know, and what that looks like in practice. I mean, it's kind of hazy, right? It's, um, you would know, you there's say, not a, would you ahead. say like someone just starting out, um, like total body, just, you know, get through everything a little bit, you know, just, yeah, I, I normally start people, um, you know, when a client, a new client comes into my gym, um, typical client is going to work with me two to three days per week. Um, and so that's going to usually be two to three full body workouts per week. Um, that, that may change if, you know, my, ideally I have people coming in and training like Monday, Wednesday, Friday or something, or, you know, something Tuesday, Friday. So we've got some space in between good. In those situations, then um, nine times out of 10, I'm going to start them with a basic full body program, which would be, you know, and I, it kind of varies based on the person because not everybody, especially with your older clients, not everybody can do the same movements with the same amount of proficiency as the next guy. But basically we're looking at, and this isn't, you know, this is pretty much everybody agrees with this. You know, you're some sort of squat, bench press, deadlift or hinging pattern, you know, um, overhead pressing pull-ups or a lat pull down or something like that rowing movement. So just your basic, just your basic movements. You know, I'm normally four to six movements per workout, you know, is, would be about right. Um, you know, some of those are your, you know, about half of those are your big basic compound movements, and then maybe a handful of smaller isolation type movements, but basically just sticking with the basics, um, you know, three, four at the max five or six movements per workout. Um, you know, two to three days per week. And then what happens is over time, as that person gets stronger, those workouts start to become more fatiguing and they start to become more time consuming. So you can't, you can't dedicate the the squats at the front end, start to take longer to get to your warm up sets and your work sets, and they start to become more fatiguing. And then the same thing with the bench presses and the deadlifts. And so what happens is you have to split those things up a little bit more if you want it to stay practical. You know, most people want to keep their workouts you know, about an hour or so, um, you know, if you start needing to push the workout to an hour and a half or something like that, then typically it's time to split things up. And I'll usually go with just a basic upper body, lower body split. So, and that can be again, anywhere from two to the, my preference is like four days a week. So, you know, Monday, Thursday, upper body, Tuesday, Friday, lower body. Um, you know, sometimes we, if I have a guy that likes to run or do sprints or, or something like that, then I may say like, okay, we're going to do upper body, Monday and Friday, Wednesday, we're going to do your lower body, uh, you know, weight training workout. And then Saturday you can go out and do your sprints or something like that. So that becomes like the second, cause a lot of guys won't recover. Some people won't recover real well from, you know, loading up the lower body two days per week. Um, especially if they're doing a lot of outside activity or whatever. So we'll, we'll vary it. And for, for women, it might be different. A lot of women who want to focus way more on their lower body, we may do lower body Monday and Friday and upper body on Wednesday or something like that. So, um, but it's usually an upper body, lower body split um, is, is how, and then a lot of people are going to be fine to just stay with that basic structure for the rest of their training career. Um, If somebody has more, uh, uh, more specific goals, um, whether it's physique oriented or whether it's like the strength sports or something like that, then there may be a need later on to, to split it up even more. And you could, you know, that's where like with the physique thing, you start to get into more of a body, a body part split. So you may have, cause you need more dedicated work on each area to continue to force adaptation, to continue to force growth. Um, but there's usually, you know, for like a raw beginner, there's not a reason for them to have an entire dedicated training session just for their arms, you know, just to do bicep and tricep, but for a more advanced guy who's no longer getting any growth out of his arms with just doing the basics, the only way for him to get more growth from his arms may be to have a dedicated day just to train in biceps and triceps so that he can have 
full, you know, full energy devoted to those movements, you know, full recovery afterwards and, and, and press those movements with more volume, more intensity, you know, more effort level, that sort of thing. And so it, you, you, you're forced into a situation where you have to split the body up into, into, um, body parts, or like in the case of powerlifting into lifts. So you have a day more that's dedicated to, which is kind of the same thing, but it's a little bit different emphasis. You know, bodybuilders are focused more on developing the individual muscle groups. Powerlifters are focused on bringing up specific movement patterns. So it winds up in practice. It looks, sometimes it looks similar, um, but it's a slightly different philosophy behind it. But yeah, like in powerlifting, it would be, you know, a day, maybe two days per week dedicated to bringing up the bench press and two days per week dedicated to bringing up the squat and the deadlift, you know, that sort of thing. So you're, you're just specializing the the split around that, that person's goals, but for the average client, um, you know, what about basic, what about, sorry, what about rep range? Like, do you, do you typically, especially someone new, start with a higher rep range, you know, just to get them accustomed to? No, I don't. I start okay. with a, with with new people. I, I, I generally start with like a five, like, well, it depends on the exercise um, for the basic barbell movements, um, squats, deadlifts, bench presses, things like that. I typically start people with five rep sets, but we start light. You know, so when I say we're going to start you on day one with a set of five, and maybe it's a set of five with the empty barbell, you know, if nobody's, if they've never done squats before, right. you know, I don't, I don't load them. So when I say a set of five, that doesn't necessarily imply, you know, five rep max on day one, you know, it's, it's a set of five that they can do. And it's multiple sets also with that, um, you know, with that weight. So it's a, it's a load that they can handle with good form. Um, I don't want them on day one. I don't want to push into failure or pushing max loads or anything like that. It's very much, a, you know, you got to learn the mechanics and you can't do that if the load is too high or the effort level is too high. Um, you know, if they're just starting with body weight only, like if someone comes in, that's really deconditioned, um, I may start them with higher reps on like a body weight squat um, versus like when I, because, but if somebody's strong enough to do a barbell squat, like a 45 pound barbell on day one, but they're not conditioned to it. Like they haven't done anything in 20 years or whatever. The problem is 10, 12 rep sets on that will absolutely destroy them. They will be so, you know, they'll be too sore to come in 48 hours later and do it again. And, you know, just for, if there's people listening to this podcast that are, you know, new young personal trainers out there, do not do that to your clients on day one. If you want to keep yourself in business, you know, you don't want to wreck your clients on day one. You know, you want them to leave the gym thinking, okay, this is something I can do. Not, Oh my God, how am I going to survive this? Like they will find a way out of it. So I feel like the, the lower rep sets are, especially on things like squats and deadlifts, the lower rep sets are far less likely to cause that extreme levels of soreness and things like that. Um, the reality is when it's a brand new client, it doesn't really matter what you do with that person. They're going to gain muscle and get stronger. So it's just to a degree, it's a matter of preference, but then, you know, on day one, I may start them with a 45 pound bar, you know, on day two, it's 50 pounds on day three, it's 55 pounds. So we're just very conservatively, but, but at the same time, aggressively adding load to those five rep sets until all of a sudden a few months in, that person who couldn't squat, you know, who could barely squat the 45 pound bar is squatting, you know, a 45 pound plate on each side, you know, only a few months in and that, that though, that's those strength increases that people get on the, on the very beginning, you know, of a good, a well-designed strength program. That's, that's what we, I mean, that's what we mean by laying the foundation. We're just getting them up to a baseline of strength to which they could, you know, cause people come in and they say, well, I want to, 
I want my, I want my, my legs and everything. I want it to look, you know, they'll show me a picture of some girl on Instagram or something. It's like, well, I want to look like this, you know, but I don't really care about strength. Well, it's like, but you're not going to look like this if you can't squat a 45 pound bar. You know what I mean? It's like this girl that you want to look like that you're showing me this picture of, you know, she can squat 225, you know, so you're not going to look like that until you can do what she, and that's, that's the thing with like physique or even health or whatever, like the weight on the bar, the problem is that's the only real metric that we have day to day. You know, it's not, I mean, yes, there's sets and reps and all that kind of stuff, but it's hard to measure. You can't measure increases in muscle mass day to day, week to week. It's too slow, but you can measure performance. And so, you know, having something in place and whether it's, you know, somebody that squats a hundred pounds for a set of five, you know, that next workout, they need to be doing 105 pounds or they need to be doing a hundred for a set of six, but something needs to go up. Um, and I think a lot of people make that mistake if they don't, they kind of focus on the outcome they want, they want to look a certain way or, or whatever. Um, but they they don't realize that the way to get there is is really meticulously tracking your performance one workout to the next and making sure that you're moving something up, you know, um, one because that's the, that's the only way that you're going to get those increases in muscle mass or increases in strength is really trying to um, track all those details and make sure that you're you know that something is going up workout to workout or at least week to week. Yeah, when and when you say something going up, you either mean sets. Or well, not necessarily sets, but probably um, just overall volume, perhaps. Yeah, you. So you can use sets. Um, yeah. I don't think that's the best way to increase. Like if somebody's doing th- um, three sets, it it kind of depends. Like if you're definitely if we're talking about muscle hy- like hypertrophy, um, then I'm usually wanting to. I'm either wanting to do two things. Um, if the goal is to increase muscle mass in this person, I'm either wanting to have them do more load for the same amount of reps. So let's just say they were doing three sets of five. If they did three sets of five with a hundred pounds on a given exercise, I either want them to do three sets of five with 105 pounds. So we, we maintained our volume, but we increased the intensity or three sets of six at a hundred pounds. So we did the same weight, but we did it for a few more reps. Um, now, could you just increase the number of sets? So instead of doing three sets of five, at a hundred, could you just do four sets of five? I think you, you can, I don't, I don't think that's the most effective way to, to program for muscle mass. I think, cause there's always to a degree, there's always just, I can rest a little longer and I can always just add another set. Mm. Whereas increasing a rep that I did within that set is more indicative of a performance increase in my opinion. And so what, is load. What about rest? Would you say, you know, you've here, depending on probably the weight or the amount of reps that you're doing. So all of the, and I think anecdotally, we've known this people that train seriously for strength. Um, but more and more of the literature is starting to support that there is very, very little, if, if bordering on no evidence that extremely short rest periods are beneficial for anything other than directly training for muscular endurance. So that for someone looking to increase muscle size or strength, that set to set more rest is better. Um, now, how much rest? I think anecdotally, we look at two minutes being the absolute minimum between a, a hard set. Now, I mean, if you're just kind of bullshitting your way up to your warm up sets, you can kind of as mm-hmm. fast as it is, you know, but once you get into your heavier work sets, we're looking at, you know, a minimum of two minutes, but, but really, for a more advanced person and on a hard exercise, like a, like a hard leg exercise, three to five. 
you know, three to five minutes. Um, that's one of the problems with, you know, heavy, hard, effective strength training in, especially like in a commercial setting is the workouts take a long time. You know, they can, um, mm-hmm. if you let that get away from you, but you do need to track them. Um, cause if you're, and you need to keep them consistent. I would tell people if nothing else, even if you're resting, not enough, even if you're saying, I'm just, I'm capping everything at two minutes, which I would say is not enough for hard, uh, you know, for hard sets on, on big fatiguing exercises, it needs to be the same all the time across workouts, because that's a huge variable that if you don't control for it, it's going to skew your performance because today, if I'm taking five minutes between sets, if it's Saturday afternoon and I got nothing to do and I'm in there doing my squats and I'm taking five minutes between sets and I have a great workout, but then, you know, the next time I squat later in the week, I'm in a rush because I got to pick up the kids from school and I cut my rest down, my rest time down to a minute and a half or two minutes and I can't get the same amount of weight, you know, my performance decreased by 50%. And I go, well, what, what happened? I got weaker. No, you didn't get weaker. You didn't control your rest time. So it's skewing your performance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you need to cut your rest time down to a minute or two minutes because of some outside thing, reduce the load on the bar, you know, or do a different exercise, but don't expect you to perform the same way under those circumstances. Um, you know, track coaches do this when you're, when you're training for max output on certain things, you know, track coaches, have traditionally used a a similar format where it's like, you know, um, what is, I think it's something like, um, like a minute of like, like a minute of rest or something. Yeah. Yeah, Or like a minute of rest per 10 meters, something like that. So like max effort, hundred meter, you know, if you have a, a a higher level track athlete doing a max effort, hundred meter dash, you're probably going to rest him about 10 minutes before you do another one, you know, because if you go less than that, he now, yeah, he could still do it, but he's running slow because he's tired and now he's not training speed and people don't get that. There's a difference between training speed and training conditioning. And that's the same thing with strength is if, if you cut your rest times way down and your the weight is having to come down or the amount of reps that you can do now, you're not training strength because you're working with submaximal loads because of, because of fatigue. So when you're, when you're trying to train for strength, you need to give yourself enough rest between sets to make sure that you're capable of max force output. Um, and that's typically why over time we talked about splitting workouts up into, you know, going from full body to upper lower to a body part split or to breaking things down into just having a day where you focus on bench, just having a day where you focus on squat that becomes practical necessity as much as physiological, because it, you just can't do all of those big barbell lifts in a same in a sense, uh, single session and still adhere to that, those rest periods. It takes too long and you know, you're in the gym for two hours or more. And yeah, most people most, don't have, yeah. or don't want to do, including me, I don't want to be in the gym that long. And so you're going to have a, a scenario where you're, but I would encourage people change your training up rather than your rest periods. You know, don't, don't say I'm going to, I'm going to rest a minute between sets just so I can do more exercises, mm-hmm. like do it right. If you're going to, if you're going to squat or deadlift or bench or like do it right and take your rest periods between sets. And then if you want to move on to your smaller, I would say less important, but your accessory type movements, um, you can push the pace a little bit more on those. Um, you know, you can cut those things down to like two or three minutes or things like that. So, um, but yeah, there's really no evidence that 30 second rest, or, I mean, that was a thing in bodybuilding for a long time, which was, you know, 30 seconds, 60 second rest. Um, you know, there's some application with that for, for muscular endurance. I mean, certainly like in the bodybuilding world back in the day, it was all about the pump 
You know, it was just how big of a pump could you certainly you're going to get a big pump, but that's there's also not a whole lot of evidence that the pump is the leading cause of muscle growth. There's really some evidence that it doesn't have that much at all to do with muscle growth at all. Um, I, I don't necessarily believe that, but I, I don't think it's the primary um, contributor to muscle growth. I think increases in load over time is the primary driver of, of muscle growth. So if you want to get bigger, you need to get stronger. I always tell my clients, look, if you're squatting, if you're tell- squatting, if you want to get bigger, you want to get your, your legs bigger, you're squatting 200 pounds for a set of five today. And a year from now, you're squatting 200 pounds for a set of five. You're not going to have grown. I don't care what else you do. You're not going to have gotten any bigger. So like if you're squatting 200 pounds today at this time next year, you need to be squatting 250, you know, or whatever uh, that number is. That's, that's the only real metric we have that I would say Garrett, but more or less guarantees muscle growth has occurred, you know, because it's rare that you're going to really go up in strength like that without, without, without also having built up muscle mass. Um, And so that's, that, that has to be accounted for. Yeah. And I, and I love the point about, um, tracking your rest periods it's something that maybe we doesn't get talked about a lot right it doesn't get talked about at all no yeah but it needs to be held it needs just like lots of things need to be held constant in training and people focus um i think that's one of those things where people don't there's a lot of things they just they just don't realize um the amount of things that need to be standardized in training so that you can um, adequately track performance, you know, even the, the, the days of, you know, your rest period between sets, but the amount of rest time between exercises, you know, if you go, if you squat on Monday and then you squat on Thursday or Friday, you're probably okay. But if your schedule changes and you squat this week on Monday, and then you squat again on Wednesday, well, now you're doing it on 48 hours rest instead of your normal 72 or 96. Well, that's different. Like you're going to have to account for that. So, but a lot of people are surprised. They're like, oh, mm-hmm. wow, I didn't, you know, so that, you know, standardizing your form, you know, so that not only is your form safe and efficient, but also that you can track a lot of people will do this again. We'll say with squats is that, you know, I teach a, a, a squat that is at or slightly below parallel. Right? I was just so, going to, I was actually just going to ask you, right. Well, yeah. Cause you're here so, differing things. Yeah. That. So, yeah. yeah. And that's, and so and some of its application towards the goal or whatever, but that's, again, it's one, you have to, whatever you decide, if you say, okay, that's, that's bonk. I don't want to, I'm not going to have clients squat below parallel. Okay, fine. I'll argue with you about that separately, but whatever, whatever it is that you decide is the optimal death depth needs to be standardized regardless. So if I'm going to teach my client to squat about an inch below parallel, and that's, if I'm looking at a client from the side, I want to see the crease of their hip you know, even with, or just below the top of their knee, that's mm-hmm. like in powerlifting, that's a, that's a powerlifting legal squat. Um, that's the, that's the criteria that they use. So I use the same thing in my gym and there's reasons for that. And that I think it, it, I think it's a weight that, that maximizes the amount of weight that can be lifted and also the amount of muscle that it's trained. Okay. So, um, going significantly below that or above that, I think you, you lose, one, you lose that combination of both muscle that can be trained and also load that, that can be used. So that's why, that's why I like that, but that's a separate issue in that if I'm going to have, if that's where I tell my client, okay, this is where we're going to squat to that needs to be done at every workout. So if he does 200 pounds for a set of five, you know, one inch below parallel, and then at 210, he's at parallel. And then at 220, he's a half inch above parallel. 
And then at 230, he's mm-hmm. one or two inches above parallel. Right. You know, and then at 250, he's doing a half squat. Did he get stronger? No, he just shortened up his stroke. Right. And so that the form has to be standardized as well. And that goes for all exercises that goes on a bicep curl. If you're doing a, you know, a 50 pound curl, you know, super, super strict for a set of 10, but then you get to a 60 pound curl and you're, you know, leaning back and using your hips and all that. Did you get stronger or did you just bastardize your form in order to lift more weight? So you can't gauge your performance increases if the form and the technique is not standardized across the board. So you want to look at, you know, you obviously want to, again, you want to have good form and technique both for safety and for efficiency so that the exercise actually works as it should, but also as a way, as a metric to measure, to making sure you are actually progressing and you're not just, you know, shortening up your squat depth or, or introducing all these momentum and all these kind of things in order to get more weight. But I see that all the time you know, guys would be like, Oh, look, I put a hundred pounds on my squat this year. And it's like, yeah, but you also shaved off about four inches of depth. <laughs> so I'm not really sure that you got stronger at all. You know, so what about maybe, the, you, maybe you did, but you don't know. What about, I mean, the eccentric and the, the tempo of the lift, um, cause that can take, you know, play a role as well. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, so you, yeah. And it cut, yes. And so, um, you know, on a bench press, you know, if you're talking about, you know, letting the weight drop and bounce off the chest and that sort of thing and bringing the hips up off the bench and all that kind of stuff. You know, I'm and on most of my exercises, the way that I teach my clients is that I want, I don't want to do super slow eccentrics, but I want a controlled eccentric yeah. um, like mainly because something, yeah, like something like that, you yeah. know, and I just, or just, you know, you just kind of watch it. You know, I may not tell them to actually count because I don't want them to have too many things going on in their head. You know, they're mm-hmm. trying to focus on their form and count their reps and, you know, count their eccentrics and all that. So mm-hmm. I will have them count, you know, if I do pauses or things like that, I have them do, you know, count their pauses and that sort of thing. But I just, I generally want to have good eccentric control so that they're in control of the movement, um, that they are in control at the end of the movement, especially for just for safety reasons. You don't want to, um, you know, especially for stronger guys, you don't want guys dropping fast into the bottom of a squat. That sort of thing is very, you know, that's where you see tendons get ruptured and things like that. So you want people to ease down under control um, into the bottom of movements, emphasize the stretch position of most movements. Um, you know, if there's a stretch component, I like to see that emphasized. I think that actually plays a role in um and hypertrophy. I think that stretch under load actually, um, is a factor that contributes to muscle growth. But I also think like for my, my general fitness clients or whatever, who have multiple goals, um, usually, especially for the older ones, one of the goals that they'll want to, you know, they want to build strength and build muscle and all that, but they also will will talk about mobility. You know, well, how do I increase mobility? Well, full range, full range of motion weightlifting is a great way. It's a great Mm -hmm. mobility exercise, you know, it's, so it's a, a lot of times it's a, now you can do mobility work or stretching and all that kind of stuff if you want outside of the gym. But one of the best things you can do for yourself is, you know, a full range of motion squat, you know, it's a, that's a, the best stretch for the squat is to squat, you know? And so continuously practicing full range of motion, letting, you know, emphasizing that stretch under load is a really great mobility exercise for a lot of people doing things like, like for my older clients who almost universally have poor shoulder mobility, you know, doing things, full range of motion, lat pull downs, you know, making them control the eccentric, really going up overhead, letting that weight, pull them gently into that full stretch position, holding that pause for a beat or two, and then coming back down. 
is a great way to teach that exercise to like an older person with mobility issues, because you're, you're, you're getting the strengthening and the muscle building portion, but you're also getting a really, really good mobility um, movement as well. So, um, you know, eccentric control is, I can't really think of a movement where I don't teach eccentric control, you know? And I think that's, I don't necessarily buy into the fact that eccentrics, like that was kind of, you know, years ago, it was the, the paradigm was that all muscle, like muscle growth was, was primarily driven by muscle damage. So the more you damage the muscle, the more it would grow back. And I think what we're seeing now is that that's not necessarily the case. That right. The, meaning, the mechanic, meaning you don't have to be crazy sore. To right. And, build, and so right. eccentric loading makes you more sore. Like there's okay. a significant amount of like, if you really want to torture somebody, you know, have them do really slow tempo, you know, heavy squats or things like that. Like, like you can make people really sore by maximizing, you know, the eccentrics or doing a lot of eccentric only movement. And so that was eccentrics were something that was more, um, you know, you saw talked about a little bit more because the level of soreness and people associated soreness with growth, the more sore that you got, the more you would grow. I think soreness is likely an unavoidable part of training in a way that's going to cause you to grow, but that the soreness in and of itself and the muscle damage in and of itself is not what is causing the growth. They're just, they're, they're co-conspirators. They're, they're, they're along for the ride. You can't, you can't train in a way, you know, I think what we're seeing now is that tent producing high levels of mechanical tension, progressive overload. That's the primary driver of hypertrophy of muscle mass gains, but that over time, you can't do, you can't continue to progressively overload the muscle. You can't continuously force the muscle to reach high levels of mechanical tension without also creating muscle damage and soreness. So, but that we're not necessarily just trying to beat the shit out of the muscle and see how, how sore we can make people that that's not necessarily the right way to go about it. But you can, you can build muscle and get stronger without being sore. You can. Yeah, I I would definitely agree. And I think the, 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 I think that's a big goal of the clients that I train the, the, the things that make people sore, um, you know, there's, or let me back up a little bit, but the way to not get sore, um, you know, and I think to to some degree, if you're going to seriously pursue strength or bodybuilding, you're going to learn to live with a little bit of mild soreness, but you're not going to wake up after every squat day with debilitating delayed onset soreness where you can barely walk. I mean, I've been training now for 30 years and I'm pretty much used to a muscle always being sore somewhere on my body. Hmm. I mean, I, I kind of like it in a way. I I feel like it's probably more psychological than anything, but I feel like, you know, I, I did enough, but I don't, if I'm insanely sore, then I look at, is my recovery maybe not so great? Because there are things that you can do, like when your nutrition is shitty, you're not hydrating, you have too much alcohol, things like that will increase muscle soreness. So sometimes if I'm more sore than normal, but I didn't really change much in my workout, then I will, then you know, if I'm more sore than normal, I kind of look at my recovery patterns and say, maybe I'm, I'm not really doing great on my nutrition, hydration, sleep, you know, whatever it is. Um, but that, that being said on the training part of it, the way that you mitigate against soreness is one, um, not changing the workouts up all the time. Again, the, the, the weeder, the weeder principle of muscle confusion, where every time we do legs, we have to do totally different, uh, movements, totally different workout, constantly change rep ranges, exercises, volume, all that kind of stuff that will keep you sore. And I think again, that, that type of principle of constant change, constant variability, 
that leads to soreness was associated with that paradigm of muscle soreness is what makes the muscle grow. And so if you believe that, then yeah, you would, you would train in a way that always made you sore because what people will find is that once you kind of get into a workout, like let's say, you know, you've got your workout a and workout B and they don't change that much, you know, week to week. Once you get through the first week or two of doing that, you're not going to get sore anymore, especially if you're smartly, um, and conservatively increasing the stress. So you're going up in weight. Yes, but not by much. You're, we're talking about two to five pound increases in weight, you know, every couple of weeks or whatever, or we may increase the rep range, but by a little bit, we're going from three sets of five to three sets of six. We're not going from three sets of five to three sets of 12, you right. know? So we're, so if, if those, all those variables, all those metrics are more or less kept the same workout to workout, but then you are, and you're just conservatively progressing that you're not going to get all that sore. What, when you tend to get sore as when you, once you've been doing this for a number of years, you know, the current workout that you're doing may you, you're going to get stagnant on it. And you may find that you're not seeing any progression like you used to, like you're not, you're not seeing any new muscle growth, your strength levels aren't going up. So your performance is increasing or you start to get some aches and pains associated with doing the same movements over and over again. And so it, you go, okay, well, I think it's maybe time to change up my routine. And so you change out exercises or you make bigger adjustments to the rep ranges. Well, then what happens? You're sore, right? right Cause it's sure. new. And, and that's just, that's just part of it though. I mean, if you're going to lift weights, there's, there's no way around occasional soreness, but there's no argument to be made for constantly being sore, you know? And if you're constantly sore, I would say either your recovery is bad or your workload is too high, you know, because there is a, there is a certain amount of work that any of us can do that we can't recover from no matter if our nutrition is perfect, our sleep is perfect. Our hydration is perfect. Um, there is a certain threshold that you can cross that you cannot recover from. And so the main thing to look for one soreness is one thing, but also performance. You know, if you're, if you're going into, if you're, if your weights, you know, you're, you're squatting on Monday and then you're going in next Monday to squat again, and you're still feeling it from the previous week, your workload's probably too high. Like, you know, so you should be able to demonstrate a performance increase day to day, week to week, especially as a beginner. So, um, you know, you need to dial that, dial that back and performance is always going to be a better metric than soreness or muscle damage. You know, that's, that's, what's really going to matter. Are my lifts is my performance going up week to week, day to day. That's always the key to muscle growth or increased performance. Not how sore am I? Although soreness may be a, a part of, um, you know, continuing to do this for a long period of time. There's going to be times where you get sore, you yeah. know, for sure. Introducing a new movement. You know, if you, if you've been just deadlifting for the first six months of training, first year of training, and then I introduce you to a Romanian deadlift. Well, the Romanian deadlift has more, it's more directly, it more directly stresses the hamstrings than a deadlift does where the, in a deadlift, the hamstrings are sharing the load a lot more with the quads, but now in the Romanian deadlift, now the hamstrings are doing much more of the work on their own. They're going through a much longer range of motion and there's greater eccentric. Um, there's a greater eccentric component to that movement. So guess what you're going to feel? a lot of soreness in the hamstrings. And that can be a useful thing. And that, you know, at least for the first workout or two is, did we get the movement right? Because if I, if I have somebody do a Romanian deadlift or a good morning or something like that for the first time, and the next day they feel nothing in their hamstrings, you know, or they didn't feel anything in their hamstrings during the workout, I could potentially look at that as, well, maybe the mechanics weren't exactly right. 
you know, because we, you should be sore after doing that. And, and, and so um, that's not necessarily the goal of the workout, but it isn't potentially an indicator that the mechanics were correct in stressing the right muscle group, you know, versus I woke up and I didn't feel anything in my hamstrings, but my lower back was really sore. Well, yeah, RDLs will cause a little bit of lower back soreness, um, but it should mainly be a hamstring type movement. And so that, so soreness patterns can be a, a useful thing to indicate effective training stimulus, but it's not the goal of the training session. You know, once, once we do that first workout of an RDL and you do, you know, 50 pounds for a set of five or whatever, then the goal now is not to get you sore again. It's to do 55 for five and mm-hmm. then 60 for five and then 60, you know, that's the goal. And whatever soreness is associated with that is what it is. But the more that you do it, the less the soreness is generally going to be. Lots of good stuff, Andy. I've, I'm like, I'm thinking, you know, we're getting up on time. I'm like, well, maybe we'll do a part two down the road a little bit. <laughs> sure. No, I'm, and I'm good on time. I don't know if you have any other questions or anything. I'm, I'm yeah, okay, no, so. I mean, this was good. I think we hit a lot. Um, yeah. I always ask this, I'll ask you one last question, then we'll, we'll um, end it here. But what, what one tip would you give someone uh, that maybe is looking to get their body back to what it once was, maybe, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago? What one tip would you give that individual? So what I normally, when I start with a, um, you know, I always tell people if you, if you're, if you're in bad shape, you know, if you're, if you're kind of a, a, and I'm not necessarily, again, I don't think I'm not necessarily talking to somebody who's, who's fit, but maybe just wants to, you know, lose a little belly fat or whatever, but somebody who's in a bad state, which is a lot of the clients that I start with, um, in, you know, they're, they're obviously not fit, but their health is in a bad place. Physical, psychological, mental health is on a bad place because they're, um, you know, because their physical health is so bad is I usually have people really commit to starting one thing and stopping one thing, you know, and try and identify and and you want to make those like this. So the starting one thing, um, if you're not doing anything now, you know, the starting of the one thing is usually going to be an exercise related thing. Although it could be an, it could be a nutrition thing. It could be, I'm going to start eating three servings of vegetables per day. Um, But usually the starting is, is going to be an exercise related thing. And I usually like that, that first thing to be something that's an extremely low barrier to clear that doesn't require cost. It doesn't require you to schedule appointments with people. And I'm saying this as a guy that owns a gym and is a personal trainer that wants you to come and see me at some point. Right. But I usually tell people, look, walk every day for 30 minutes. If you're not doing anything now, like that is, there is nothing stop. There is nothing stopping you from opening your front door and walking for 30 minutes. You know, um, you know, if you're in Chicago and it's sub zero temperatures mm. or whatever, okay, fine. Go buy a $30 a month membership to the, to the <laughs> gym that has a treadmill and a, you know, I don't hey, know what you people do that live up. I'm there, walking but, with my dogs, no matter the temperatures. So yeah. And you know, and I've, and I pretty much tell people that here in Houston, you know, when it's, a, you know, it's, I got older people that are on, you know, maybe I, it's not good advice for the trainer to tell them to walk in 105 in the middle of July, but you know, Hey, if that means you got to get up at 5.00 AM when it's, when it's 85 and not 105 then that's what you do, you know, but it's start something and do it consistently, you know, and it, and it needs to be, it can't, it, you want it to be a low barrier, but you don't want it to be so small that it doesn't have an impact. Right. You know, it's not, I'm going to go for a walk, you know, I'm going to every Saturday or something like, you know, 30, like walk 30 minutes a day. If you're not doing anything now, do that for three months, you know, and then you can start something else after that. You know, and at the same time on that day one, we're going to start one thing and we're also going to stop one thing, 
we're going to, and again, it can't be the, I'm going to, you know, stop having chocolate cake. Like, well, how often do you have chocolate cake once a month? Like that, that's not going to like, what's you got to find something that we're doing every day. That's having a huge negative impact on your health that we're going to stop. And for usually what I'll look at people, the first thing I'll look at is alcohol. Mm. You know, what are you, what's your drinking habits? Like, you know, are you, are you down in a bottle of wine per night? You know, or are you, are you sitting there? Are you drinking a six pack a night? You know, that's the first thing that we're going to stop because that's going to, that's going to have a big physical impact, not just in the reduction of calories, but getting all that shit out of their, out of their head. And it's going to get them, you know, and maybe for some people, you know, that's not, it's not to abstain from it completely. You know, that may be a big, and you don't want to, as a trainer, you don't want to get into being a counselor necessarily, but that's, they do overlap, but maybe if, you know, if that's, if you're at a bottle of wine every night, maybe it's a glass per night, you know, I'm going to stop yeah. drinking that bottle of wine. I'm going to start maybe instead of drinking that six or 12 pack every night, I'm going to have one beer at night, or I'm going to only drink on Friday and Saturday, but we got to, we got to start one thing and we got to stop one thing Love and they got to be big but they got to be simple and they got to go on for 12 weeks. And at the end of 12 right. weeks, they will have seen a difference. Yeah. You know, they will no. have seen, and then that's going to give them a ton of momentum, you know, physically and mentally, emotionally to move into the next level of things to actually get on a, they're going to trust that it actually works. A lot of people, it's amazing how many people don't believe that diet and exercise actually works. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's weird. I mean, our industry in a way sells that to people. Oh, diet and exercise don't work for you. Try this. Like, no, that's such bullshit. I mean, diet and exercise literally works for everybody. There's no scenario where improvements in there aren't positive. And so, you know, getting people the mental and the physical headspace to then make a bigger change to actually, okay, get on a more solid regimented nutrition plan. Okay. Actually get into a gym and maybe hook up with a trainer or get into a more structured class thing. You know, they'll be in a better place to do that. You know, so yeah, that's, that's what I usually tell people. Too. I like the way, I like the way you stay that start something and end something and it has to be somewhat significant and for 12 weeks. Um, and like you said, the walking, I talk about walking so much on this podcast, it's, you know, ad nauseum, but I, I agree. Um, yeah. And it's, and I always tell people that it, it, people will almost create their own obstacles to, to like starting that. And they're like, well, I don't have a step counter. I need to go get an Apple watch or what I'm like, mm -hmm. no, no, you don't, you don't need to right. count your steps. Like you, like, that's good. Like I'm, I'm, but like literally pick a physical destination. I'm just going to walk to the light post that's at the end of my street and back. Like it can be totally arbitrary, sure. you know, or 30 minutes. I'm just going to, I'm going to walk 15 minutes in one direction. And then when I hit 15 minutes, I'm going to turn around and walk back. Like, don't, you don't need to go out and buy new clothes. You don't need to go buy an Apple watch. You don't need to do right. all these things, And but they will do that. They'll, yeah. they'll say, well, I got to do this, 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 and this before I start this. And I'm like, with walking, all you need to do is walk out your front door right now. Like, that's it. Walk out your front door right now and go on a walk. You don't need to do any. There's that's why I always generally start with walking, because there's really no excuses to be made other than per, potentially the weather. Sure. You know, depending on where you live. But other than that, there's really and there's so many gyms now that I mean, I have I don't have a lot of cardio equipment in my gym. So I have, have clients like there's there's gyms all over us that are thirty dollars a month or whatever that are basically a few weight equipment and just, but just bikes, rows of bikes and treadmills that aren't being used. Right. And it's like, I mean, it's yeah. so simple, you know, good stuff, Andy. All right. Best place for people to find you, your website. Um, yeah. My website, um, andybaker.com um, or my Instagram, which is at Baker barbell. Awesome. Well, 
lot of great knowledge, a lot of great knowledge here today. So I appreciate you coming on and, and, uh, and dropping all that for us. Yeah, man. I appreciate you having me on. I'd love to love to do it again. Yeah, no doubt. Have a great day. All right. You too. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.